I'm Pete Pedro Hoffmeister, and this is the Boring is a Swear Word podcast. People always say everything on the internet is permanent. Anything you post or write can be retrieved later, even if you delete it. So 10 years ago, I was trying to figure out three possible endings for my novel, Graphic the Valley. And one of the endings involved an act of terrorism. So I needed to understand bombs. I needed to understand different kinds of explosive devices. And I thought of Timothy McVeigh and the Oklahoma City bombing and how powerful and catastrophic that was. And I remembered that it was a fertilizer bomb. So I had to Google, ask the question online, how do I make a fertilizer bomb? But I was afraid of doing that at my house. So naturally, I did it at school. I went to a computer bank in a back office that wasn't mine. I went to a computer bank and to a computer that I never used. And I waited until nobody else was around, just grading some work until all the people left. And I fired up that search engine, and I started Googling things. How to make a bomb. What are the parts of a bomb? How to make a timer. Where to get fertilizer. How much fertilizer to make a bomb. What should the casing of a bomb look like? What are the four parts of an IED? What are the five components of a bomb? What should I use as primer? Just kept Googling this list. How do I make my cell phone part of a bomb? And I just spent, I don't know, an hour Googling all these things about making bombs and blowing things up and what kind of impact different types of bombs and materials would have. And then I closed that browser, and then I wiped down the keyboard so my fingerprints wouldn't be on it. I was pretty paranoid, but also a little bit worried. And then I left, and I went back to work. I feel like that was an okay decision. Speaking of bombs and weapons, I remember being in the Weapons Museum in Copenhagen, Denmark, when I was 10 years old. I went in by myself, and the museum was completely empty. And I don't mean it was empty of tourists. It was. There were no other tourists there. It was even empty of workers. There was one person at the front that took my entrance money and ticket. And that was the only person in the entire museum other than me. And because I was 10 and very curious, I touched everything. I touched every gun I could touch. I touched every grenade launcher. There were tanks from World War I and World War II cordoned off by little red velvet hangings. And I ducked under, climbed up on the tanks, and got inside. I was really curious, and it was an amazing experience. 
I got to inter, uh, interact physically with all of these incredible relics. But one thing I didn't get to touch was the museum had one of the world's first guns. It was a, basically a pipe with a handle. It was from China in the 14th century. And this little handled pipe would be packed with powder and then some kind of cloth and then a stone ball. And then they'd use grass running through as ignition to ignite the powder and to shoot the ball. This gun was so old. And I recently thought about that 14th century Chinese gun as I was reading Cloud Cuckoo Land, the novel. And one of the main elements of the novel is two people, a boy and a girl on either side during the fall of Constantinople in 1453. And for a thousand years, Constantinople had been attacked, had been besieged by different armies. And for a thousand years, the double granite walls, the moat, and the outer earthen wall system had repelled invaders for a thousand years. But in 1453, the young sultan who took the throne at 18, he studied war as other people studied astrology. And he worked with a Hungarian weapons maker who had originally offered a cannon design to the emperor in Constantinople, but the emperor did not have enough money. So the Hungarian war maker, the mercenary, went to the sultan and sold his cannon idea that he had taken from the east, from China. He sold it to the sultan, and the sultan built this enormous cannon. He got all this metal from surrounding villages in Erdine, and they made a huge cannon mold in the ground melted all this metal together from things like stolen church bells, crosses, bronze, even some gold and silver, dumped it all in this mold, cooled it with wet sand, pulled it out of the ground with 500 oxen, and then brought it I, so many miles. I don't even know how many miles, but it took weeks to drag it in a cart, a huge cart overland to the outskirts of Constantinople to meet up with much, much smaller cannon. And the sultan attacked the weakest parts of the wall systems of Constantinople. And though the city hadn't been conquered in a thousand years, by sieging against the city for 59 days, he took it. Inside the city, the people of Constantinople believed that the end of the world and the second coming of Christ would coincide with the fall of Constantinople, their great city. So inside Constantinople, as they're being sieged by the sultan's armies, as they're facing cannon fire for the first time, they realize that it's about the end of the world. They think we're all going to die Christ is coming back, and there will be a new heavens and a new earth. But 
what they didn't know about Mehmet II, the new sultan, is that when he did capture the city, and when the city did fall after a thousand years of battles, it was a different kind of new world. Instead of Christ returning and the end of this physical world taking place, instead, Constantinople fell. The new sultan did not allow his men to go in and destroy the city. Instead, as soon as they breached the walls and had victory in hand, he pulled them back. And he instructed his armies that they were going to capture the city and then build it even more beautiful than before. He had a grand vision. And it wasn't just his vision that he wanted. He invited the leading Orthodox minister in the region to come live there. The leading rabbi, the leading Jewish leader. And he also wanted the leading Islamic clerics in this place with him. And he invited the Papas from Rome, a leading archbishop. He wanted all the religions respected and coexisting in this new city. He also invited scholars from all over the world. And the new world that he created in the old Constantinople was a new world of learning. And instead of it being the end of the world, it was the end of the Middle Ages, and it was the beginning of the Renaissance. And I was thinking about that this week because with our pandemic, with our choices collectively causing global climate change, with what seems like the end of the world possibilities happening right now, I think it's easy for me to just say, well, maybe this is the end or the start of the end either the start of a quick end or the start of a slow end, but definitely the start of an end. But instead, this week, I've been trying to think of it differently. What if what we're looking at is the start of the next 500 years? A renaissance. A different renaissance from the original, but a renaissance coming. So instead of the end of the world beginning now, maybe we're looking at a beautiful and interesting new beginning. One of my favorite types of poetry is found poetry, where you take a text that is not poetic in any way, take words and phrases from that text, adding no words of your own, zero. You can only take what's there and making a poem out of this non-poetic text. So for example, this morning, I used a Rice Krispies box, a Honey Nut Cheerios box, a Honeycombs box, and a Frosted Mini Wheats box, stealing words and phrases from those cereal boxes, and only words and phrases that were on those boxes, adding none of my own to come up with a poem. And honestly, I didn't know cereal could be so inspiring and creative and metaphorical and nationalistic, but those boxes were. Here's the poem. Get this day started right. A brighter future starts with you, an adventurous llama, a hungry caterpillar, a bear, 
Try something you've never done before. Be creative. Make something cool. Red pajamas. Wings that buzz. Don't be afraid to be delicious. You are butter. You are jet-puffed marshmallows. A dreamer. Independent. Get redeemed. You are layers and layers of wholesome goodness. In una casarola, you are mantequilla bien recubierta. The best. North American. Penguins. The future of the United States. So be kind. Be confident. Be brave. When writing found poetry, sometimes you're a little surprised by what you discover. This next poem is a found poem taking phrases from a college textbook called Earth, Portrait of a Planet, a geology textbook by Stephen Marshak, which I didn't know was kind of a dirty, sexy book until I found this poem using only phrases from three pages of the geology text. Warning. This is rated R. Glowing, rise and flow, burning, your hot crust and the thrusting, choking and enveloped, turbulent and boiling, the growing weight, ferocious heat, moving so slowly then faster, viscous and exposed like rough skin, and the heat molten, Pyroclastic, smooth now your flanks, your landslide like a filaments of glass, dripping soft lava, wet, squirting explosively, and finally the eruption, bursting and ejecting, clots and drops. I mean, damn, geology's hot, right? These very important found poems remind me of some other very important writing I did in 2015-2016. The first example is this essay, titled, How to Eat Dinner with Crows. These are public dinners in city parks or parking lots, or sometimes the middle of the street so everyone can see you, and to fit in you'll have to wear all black. The chef will serve carry-on. There will be skin and hair involved. Disregard this. Disregard this smell as well. Crowd in around the meal, shoulder to wing, wing to shoulder. Follow these steps. One, plunge your nose deep into the body of the animal as if your nose were a beak. Two, rend meat free with your incisors. Three, pull back. Four, masticate wildly while tottering around on talon-like feet. Five, squawk between each swallow. Six, when cars come, flap away at the last second. Seven, return to the meat.
Dirtbag climbers are willing to do anything, eat anything, sleep in the dirt, just be able to climb more. I'm just a dirtbag in general. I don't have a lot of money, but I adventure pretty often. So this is an essay I wrote called The Nine Rules of Dirtbag Golf. I played a new dirtbag sport the other day, golf. For those of you who have never played it, here are the rules. One, whenever you can, play for free. This is important. If you can't figure out how to play for free, then you aren't a real golfer. Two, ask your neighbor friend if he has any outdated cigars in his humidor. Smoke one of those while you play. You'll look stodgy and golfy without having spent any money. Three, play from July to September. Windfall plums, apples, and blackberries will keep you eating free food as you walk the course. Four, play plus minus with golf balls. If you lose three and find seven, for example, that's plus four golf. In golf, a higher number is better. Five, when you get away from the clubhouse, dig, wade, and swim for balls in any water feature. It's fun. It helps your plus minus score too. Six, Play plus minus with tees as well. Seems trifling, but anything can keep a person entertained during what Mark Twain called a good walk spoiled. If searching for tees gets too boring, UFC grapple a friend, brother, sister, or stranger for each unbroken tee found on the course. Note, UFC, UFC style tap outs might cause a significant golfing injury to one of the locals who, for whatever reason, Mostly don't know Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Seven, fish all ponds for bass or carp and bow hunt coarse nutria. Bring a plastic bag for, quote, take-home meat and skins for future moccasins. Eight, play at least one entire par five hole with a single club. Maybe a putter or a five iron. Your score of 17 with just one club is going to impress a lot of golfers. Nine. Finally, play at least one hole barefoot or pants off or completely naked sprinting the entire time. These holes are the most fun. For Independent Bookstore Day, Penguin Press, which is now part of Random House, asked 20 of its writers to submit essays to an anthology that they were titling Days Like This, Good Writers on Bad Luck, Bum Deals, and Other Torments. I was one of the 20 writers that they asked to submit, so I wrote an essay titled Maybe We Take Ourselves a Little Too Seriously. Number one. My friend Ben Leroy has started doing sensory deprivation flotation tank sessions. I'd never heard of these, so I asked him to explain. He said, I pay $60 an hour to float for 90 minutes. I get in something sort of like a coffin that's filled with 94 degrees salt water. Wait, I said, you get in a coffin? Yeah, and the goal is to float successfully. How do you float successfully, I asked. Well, you get into a lucid dreaming state. I had to look this thing up, and there were some sketchy sites on the topic. But there was also a Wall Street Journal article and one on Slate.com, so I read those. And according to Slate.com, floating is a profound 
ecstatic state of nothingness, achieved while floating naked in a sensory deprivation tank. According to GravitySpa.com, floating can help the brain access the mysterious elusive state of theta wave production. But I get stuck on words like naked. So I went back to that idea. I asked Ben, wait, so people float naked? He said, the first time it was crazy. I had a dream about owls, man. Okay, I said. So let me get this straight. People pay $60 to get in a coffin half filled with water and salt. Yup. Then the workers close the lid and you don't know where you are. Total sensory deprivation. Awesome, I said. And you dream? Well, if you float successfully, you dream. So I said, is floating successfully just a euphemism for sleeping? So people are paying $60 to sleep for 90 minutes? No, no, man, he said. Clearly, you don't understand. Clearly. I told my other friend Karina about floating, and she said, that sounds a little hipster. Do all the people who work at the floating tanks have mustaches? Probably, I said. Yeah, Karina said, you'd have to pay me to get into someone else's warm, naked tank. You know people jack off in there. Clearly, she wasn't taking this seriously enough either. Number two. On June 18th, 2000, anarchists from around the country organized in my hometown, Eugene, Oregon, to mark the anniversary of an anarchist riot the year before. 400 protesters gathered in a park and smashed a dummy of a police officer using potatoes, skateboards, and boots. Speakers announced that they were calling for an end to capitalism. A dozen anarchists used puppets to reenact violence while 80 others marched into downtown. It was very organized. On 7th Street, the anarchists gathered in front of the federal building and threw batteries against the windows, chanted, Red Rover, Red Rover, send fascists right over hoping for a senator or a congressman to exit the building. But the politicians weren't coming forward, and riot police had locked down the building ahead of time. A SWAT team was in the lobby, waiting for the command to arrest the anarchists, which they eventually did. I was working in the lobby of that federal building, selling coffee and baked goods when the riot took place. I thought it was hilarious that anarchists, who had chants and slogans against organization, had organized these events. I also thought it was funny that they performed a puppet show. I said, do anarchists enjoy puppet shows? My friend said, the puppets were a depiction of the police, man. Oh, that makes it better. Yeah, man, my friend said, fuck the police, you know? Okay, I said, but the anarchists have leadership and organization and all that? Isn't that hilarious? Why, he said, are you a fascist? Yes, I said, I'm a fascist. Sorry I didn't take this seriously enough. Number three. Like I said, during that anarchist riot, I was working at the coffee shop on the ground floor of the federal building. I was in there when the SWAT team locked it down, put zip ties on the insides of the doors, announced that no one was going in or out, and sent a runner up to the political offices on the upper floors. I was supervising the cafe, so I called my manager and asked her if she wanted me to close it down. She said, no, don't close the cafe. Keep it open for a while and see if the cops end up buying anything. So I left the cafe open. And the cops did purchase things. They bought donuts. All of the fresh donuts. Then they started buying the day-old donuts one by one. 
A cop would saunter over to the counter with his riot gear on, look at the display case as if he might buy anything other than a donut. Then he'd go ahead and buy another donut. When I was down to my last day-old donut, one of the SWAT team members walked up with his helmet tipped back, his AR-15 slung across the front of his Kevlar vest. He pointed to the last donut, a crusty little old-fashioned circle that had been there since yesterday morning. As if picking out a fine wedding ring, he said, I think I'll just take that one right there. That's the last day-old donut, I said. You guys ate all of the donuts, all of the fresh donuts and all of the day-old donuts. Yup, he said. Isn't that funny, I said. The cop tilted his head to the side like he didn't understand what I was saying. Why, he said. Number four. It's easy to tell other people to take themselves less seriously. It's harder to follow my own advice because, you know, I take myself too seriously. For the following anecdote to make sense, you have to understand that I am not a tall man. I am, as my students say, a fun-sized person. My sophomore year in college, when I was on the wrestling team, the media guide director decided to list my height as five foot six inches tall, and I was elated. That is, by far, the tallest height anyone has ever given me. In all honesty, if I woke up in the morning when humans are the tallest and went directly to a bar to hang for ten minutes, I still would be just a little bit under 5'6". People have made fun of me over my height or lack of height my entire life. I'm not complaining. It's just a fact. And usually, I don't mind too much. I'm not a big man. I'm okay with that. Do I sound offensive? Anyway, I was in the store the other day. I was in the milk section, where all of the butter, yogurt, and milk are housed. At our local grocery market, this is sort of an enclosed space where people walk in and walk out. We get in each other's way back there, but we make do and brush against each other in that tight space. So I walked into that small little milk section, and as I walked in, I heard a kid's voice. He said, Thomas, Thomas, look, look, Thomas, there's a midget. I looked at the kid tapping his brother's shoulder. They were both grade school age, youngish kids, both really excited. Then I looked around the milk section trying to f figure out where the midget was because even though I'm a small man and naturally tend to defend small people, I like seeing other small people too. So I looked behind the butter fridge, looked out past the orange juice, past the yogurt, past the chocolate milk, but I didn't see the small person. In fact, I didn't see anyone. I was all alone in that entire section. I looked back at the boys. They were both staring at me. Thomas! The first one said, look, it's a midget. He pointed. I just stood there next to the butter. Then their mother walked up. Apparently, she'd heard the kid yelling about me being a midget, and she was now here to correct the misconception. I thought she was going to say, oh no, son, that's not a midget. That's a smallish, full-size man, or something like that. But instead, she said, oh, sweetie, shh, you gotta be quieter. They can hear you when you talk about them. Being a high school teacher is such a great job because you get to meet hundreds of interesting and fun new people every single year. And then 
those kids grow older and suddenly they're 26 or 29 or 31 and they're married. They have kids or they're visiting the pyramids in Egypt. You get to see all of their adventures on social media. Recently, I've been in contact with two of my old students, Titus Wrencher and Cameron Lindsay. And it's been fun to talk a little with them online and think, ah, we're going to meet up again someday. So I'm dedicating this episode to Cameron and Titus, two great people. And hopefully the stories I've told, the essays I wrote, are Cameron and Titus worthy. Thank you everyone for listening to the Boring is a Swear Word podcast. And my-